Hey everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Stoa Mars Hell podcast. I'm Raymond Okapil. And I'm Sophie Klonperens. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast hosted by Stoa alumni where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this special episode, we'll be answering the question, what is an unreliable narrator, and what does it have to do with Mars Hill? We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings have strung. All right, everyone, welcome. Um, If you're here for the first time, this is not our usual format we usually usually we talk about a book or a or a movie or a song yeah and we are not doing that here (laughs) yeah we decided um it might be good to defend ourselves a little bit um (laughs) and we want to talk about a little bit about what our podcast is what the purpose is uh, purpose of it is and why we have uh, made some of the choices that we have made in the podcast and and essentially what our what our mission is um another point i want to make before we get started um the word defense in the original greek was actually apologia and that's where we get the word apologetics and it's only in modern early a change in early modern english where apologetics uh used to change from saying a defense of something to i'm sorry and we think that shakespeare had something to do with it because shakespeare ruined the english language as we all know and he used (laughs) he no he was using he used the word apology ironically which was a testament to his genius and of course the ironic use of it was what changed the meaning um so we're doing an apology i think probably in both senses here we're defending and we're apologizing for not explaining ourselves earlier um <laughs> well i it was really it was a choice because we were embodying the way that you have a good speech which is that you have a hook you get people's attention and then you explain and then you, then you go back and you give your narratio so this is actually just good rhetoric yeah okay that's exactly so we're not apologizing we're apologeticizing no, no apologies ever <laughs> um so just to give a little bit of context uh <laughs> sophie and i were both homeschooled and we participated in a christian homeschool speech and debate league known as stoa and what we learn in speech and debate is, you know, rhetorical devices, ways to defend ourselves. And this is one of the events that we learn about and practice in speech. And later we became speech coaches. So one of the things that we want to do in this podcast is create a resource for this event um, that's helpful to our own students. And we also sort of felt that this particular event um, in our league is is something that's highly misunderstood. Uh, People don't really know what the the best approach is, what exactly this this event is, what it's used for, what's the historical background, and how are we supposed to use it 
and how is it going to be used later on. That's some of the things that we want to explain today. So first of all, what is Mars Hill? The event or the the rock in Athens? Uh, <laughs> Which one? Well, let's start with let's start with the 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 rock in Athens. Ah, uh, so otherwise known as the Areopagus. Uh, which is just a hill that's in Athens, sort of near the Acropolis. Um, that's where lots of the public discussions or court-related discussions would happen. Um, it for the the importance of it for the Mars Hill event is that that is where Paul gave the speech that we find in Act Seventeen um, to read some of that in case you don't remember that story or it's been a long time. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring." Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So, I think maybe the most important thing to note there, first of all, is that he uses an aspect or an element of their pagan religion to point them back to the true God. And he says that there's, there's this altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And it would be really easy for Paul to look at that inscription and that altar and say, you, you're all fools. <laughs> there is no unknown God. There aren't many gods. There's only one God. So you're all wrong. Let me tell you about the God that isn't unknown, that isn't part of your religion, that has nothing to do with, uh, with your art or your culture. But instead, he says, uh, the inscription says to the unknown God, you don't know who that God is, so I'm going to tell you about him. And he uses a pagan religion to speak to them. Yeah. Which gives us the intro into, into what we're trying to do in the Mars Hill speech event. Right. And what, is, what, what we think is really special and unique about the way that Paul presented the gospel is that he was always highly educated in the audience that he was speaking to. And... He said that explicitly. He said, you know, to the Jew, I become a Jew. To the Greek, I become a Greek. He becomes the person that he needs to speak to. And he, and he becomes literate in the culture and art that that, that, that particular 
culture produces. And that's what exactly what he de- does. So in the context of this situation, he was probably walking around um, the town and he sees all of these altars and a lot of them were very big and extravagant to to Zeus and other major Greek deities. And this altar probably was not held in a prominent place um, in the in the temple, in the in the objects of worship that were on display here. It was probably something that was very small and it was put there to the side and people worshipped it because they didn't know who he was. Um, it was just an unknown god. It's something that we can't account for but we're there and kind of like we put it there just in case. Just in case he's, uh, he's real, you know. Later on, he quotes... The poets of the Greeks, he says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So instead of coming top down and saying, this is what you need to know, he says, look, there are things that you know already, and let's take those truths and lead that and and, and, and expound on that and expand it. So this is actually a particular device that Paul didn't develop himself. It was actually a rhetorical device that um, emerged from Greek thought. And this is something, Sophie knows a lot of uh, Greek and Latin. She studied the Greek texts. Um, So she has a lot to say about this. Um, What is it that the, what is the particular uh, rhetorical device that Paul is employing here? So uh, it's hearkening back to Aristotle and what Aristotle referred to as the rhetorical situation. Um, I don't know if I'd call it a rhetorical device as much as a grounding for the way that you think about rhetoric or uh, the way that you think about speaking in a public sense. Um, So Aristotle defined rhetoric as the, uh, the art of discovering at any given moment or in any given situation all the available means of persuasion. So in any... Uh, situation or state that you find yourself, you're able to figure out what are the tools that you have that are going to help you persuade this audience that you have in this particular situation. So the rhetorical situation is just that situation. Whatever uh, circumstances you have at this particular point that mean you should or should not say certain things in order to persuade your audience. Mm -hmm. I really simple example this is an example i give to my i I teach rhetoric so what example i give to them all the time is if you wanted to persuade one of your teachers to give you less homework to you you might think that the most persuasive argument is it makes us feel bad (laughs) we don't like doing it it doesn't feel good but that argument is not persuasive to your teacher who wants you to learn the material um and so an argument that says we are learning less because we're working more and so we're sleeping less or so we're jaded and disillusioned, we don't like the material anymore. That kind of argument is actually persuasive to your teacher. And it's persuasive because of the rhetorical situation that you're in. If you were trying to convince your your buddy in the class that your teacher should give you less homework, that is going to require different sorts of arguments. Um you're going to have to use arguments that appeal to him, not to your teacher. Um, And it has to do with... So, yeah, basically. It has to do with appealing to the values of the person that 
that you're talking to as well. Um, yes. Appealing to the values and also appealing to the language and the stories that that your val that are your values are embedded in. Um, so I can talk about some of my own personal experience also as a teacher. Um, so when I was a teacher, I was I was in China in 2019, and I was an English teacher to students who were had never had English as their primary first language. And one of the things that I was trained as an EFL teacher is that I need to learn how to be how to use the words that 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 they know which means that I have a bank of about what 400 or 500 vocabulary words that they are familiar with and I have to use those words to es- express ideas that may in fact be uh relatively complex I remember one of the ways in which this actually worked for me is um, I had my students asking me to give a definition of making a reservation, as in making a hotel reservation. And I know I could have just said, oh, well, it's where you go to a hotel and you write down on a piece of paper that you are going to save that uh, room at a certain time, blah, 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 give, basically give a definition of hotel reservation. And of course, if I said that, then that wouldn't have gone well with them at all. They wouldn't, because they don't know any of those vocabulary words. Um, and so instead, I had to tell a story. Tell a story of somebody uh, walking into a room, let's say, a room with lots of beds in it. Oh, okay, that's a hotel. All right, and now here are a bunch of times, and and um, here are places where you can have... Um, a reservation. Can you make a reservation here? No, John has a reservation here. Can you make a reservation at 12:45? No, Mary has a reservation here. Can you make a reservation at 1:30? No, uh, oh, Sam has a reservation here. Can you make a reservation at three o'clock? Oh yes, no one has a reservation there. And they're like, oh, I get it. So I take all of the just those limited words, and then I tell a story with that, and then that's what gives the understanding of the word. Um, that's kind of what we want to do with culture, right? We take limited resources, we take these stories, and we say, all right, what do these stories instruct us about a deeper truth? And I think that a lot of times in Christian art, you know, when there's kind of been, been, been this evangelical movement to make Christian art and Christian movies and Christian music um, as a means of converting people. And I don't think that all of these are necessarily all ineffective. I mean, I think they've done some good and maybe they have spoken to people, but I don't think that that is really the approach that Paul was using and maybe it's not necessarily the best approach because if we're trying to talk from a strictly evangelical perspective and we're just kind of trying to show a movie that just preaches the gospel straight at you, then you're not using the resources that speak to the experiences of people in their everyday lives. And as a matter of fact, there are quite a lot of works of art that are coming almost entirely from a secular perspective that tell us a lot about Christian truths. And that's really the interesting thing about Christianity. As C.S. Lewis said, it's the myth that encapsulates all other myths. It's the one true myth. And all other myths are something, are, are paths that, that can lead to it. And so any, any story where 
an author or artist is honestly and authentically grasping with truths and phenomenon that are part of the human experience. For example, human suffering, sin, evil, death, despair, um, and the need for forgiveness and redemption. These are all things that are not just Christian ideas. They're, they're human ideas. And it's something that within the context of Christianity, uh, we can we can approach something like an answer to, 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 to those questions. Um, so that's what we want to do. And that's what we have been doing with the, the past few pieces of art that we have been going, going through. Um, these people, these, these artists are not necessarily coming at it with the aim to evangelize or, or tell people about the gospel, but there are, truths that can lead us to the gospel unintentionally. And, I, and the word unintentional is particularly useful in this context. Um, so that leads us to why we chose the, the title for our podcast. We, called our, we call ourselves the Unreliable Narrators. So Sophie, Sophie came up with this title, so I'll let her take the floor for this. What is an unreliable narrator? So... Primarily, just the dictionary definition, an unreliable narrator uh, is a literary device where the narrator of a story, whether that's a first-person narrator who's saying, I did this and that, or a third-person narrator who's narrating the events of other people, where that narrator is not necessarily objectively telling you the whole truth. And that's not necessarily intentional. Sometimes there might be a narrator who is out of his mind or uh, thinks that something is true and turns out not actually to be correct about that. There are all sorts of reasons that a narrator might be unreliable, um, but the, the idea is that the narrator is not telling you necessarily the objective truth. And one thing I think is really interesting about that literary device is that it's a pretty recent phenomenon um, in the Victorian era in British literature especially, like when, when Charles Dickens, for example, was writing, Charles Dickens is an eminently reliable narrator. Charles Dickens does not tell you anything false. He would not lie to you. And when you read stories by, by Dickens, uh, an individual character might lie. You might have a character who's a liar. But the narrator even sometimes will point it out and be like, you could... David Copperfield could tell that so-and-so was lying. Um, the narrator is not going to lie about that or be incorrect or not objective. But then, as industrialization started to happen um, in, in England <clears throat> and people started growing a little bit more disillusioned, a little bit more jaded about Christianity or just about objective truth or morality in general, people started asking a lot more questions as we moved into modernism about can we really know objective truth? Can we really know whether something is moral or immoral? Are there really objective facts about the way that we relate to each other and to God? Um, and along with that shift in literature, we started seeing for the first time narrators who were unreliable. So in a lot of ways, this literary device is connected to that idea that we're not totally sure that there's such a thing as objective truth or 
morality. One of the things that is true about the unreliable narrator is that even though you know that this narrator is not necessarily telling you the whole truth, you can usually read between the lines and piece together what the real facts are, what the real truth is. This is especially true in the stories of Edgar Allan Poe. And we think that that's true of the stories that we see in culture, even stories that are explicitly not Christian. Uh, going back to what we were saying earlier about the idea of a story that's honest or authentic, I personally believe that any, any story that is honest, any story that is the author or singer or artist or whatever, really genuinely trying to struggle with the way the world is or struggle with truth in some way and they're honestly writing about what their experience is, that that story has some benefit or some truth for us. But that sometimes we have to read between the lines to get there because it's not exactly what the artist is saying. Sometimes it's in the, the pieces or the holes that are left behind. So that's sort of why an unreliable narrator would connect to the idea of Mars Hill. Right. And I actually want to clear up something that I actually mis misunderstood about an unreliable narrator when I first heard about it, you know, when I was in high school and my English literature class. And that was, um, I think that what a lot of people think about when they are hear the term unreliable narrator, that is that an unreliable narrator is simply a liar. And that's what I thought it was when I first heard about it. And of course, that didn't really sit well with me. The classic example of an unreliable narrator is the one you mentioned, Edgar Allan Poe, who wrote the short stories like The Telltale Heart, where the main character was obviously and literally a murderer, and um, they can't be trusted. Um, and then that actually um, is indicative of the broader cultural shift of, you know, the, the shift of, of morality and, and this divorce from, from, from God, um, which Nietzsche, Nietzsche famously mourned. Um, but it's not actually true that an unreliable narrator is necessarily a liar. And in fact, there's lots of different kinds of unreliable narrators. Um, there's the na naive narrator, and the narrator is unreliable because of his or her lack of experience. So an example of that would be Mark Twain in Huckleberry Finn. Um, he's a teenager, he's young, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's just trying, just like, just mucking through, trying to understand his place in the world and understand this complex uh, society that, that he's living in. And and he doesn't, and he doesn't get it. He just honestly doesn't get it, um, and he's trying to figure it out. Um, there's the outsider. So the narrator may be new in town or from a different racial, socioeconomic background from the rest of the characters in the story. So a lot of Rudyard Kipling's uh, works are like this, and um, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person is lying or trying to lie or trying to deceive. They just they don't understand. And I think Rudyard Kipling gets a, a little bit more flack than he deserves. You know, I don't think that he was trying to be, you know, a a colonial imperialist oppressive, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, but I think he definitely made some mistakes, and that just came from his from his inevitable ignorance. Um, there's an, there's a narrator who exaggerates, who likes to embellish a story. These um, can be really fun fun narrators, uh, and 
of course, that doesn't mean that we don't think that the narrator has our best interest, is, is out to get us or out to lie to us. They're just trying to make the story more interesting. So Mark Twain was really famous for doing that. And even Gandalf in Lord of the Rings says all good stories in, uh, in, involve embellishment. Another example of this kind of narrator is Trinity. Oh, yes. Trinity Club Parents. Yes. <laughs> She's a great, unreliable narrator. We, we love her very much. <laughs> I hope she doesn't get mad at mad at us for that. <laughs> well, we called her a wood nymph. Yep. We said she was bad at Mars Hill. Then we said, <laughs> we, we, now we're saying she's an unreliable yes. narrator. So I think I don't know that this is more. We're taking advantage of the <laughs> worse than any of the We're taking thing. advantage of the rhetorical situation here that Trinity is not present. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, and oh, all right. The other unreliable narrator I wanted to mention was the insane narrator. Um, the narrator who has lost touch with reality and um, can't or is otherwise insane can tell a compelling story that may not be reflective of the truth. Um, so Dostoevsky and his book Notes from the Underground is very notable for being an insane narrator and a great piece of work. Um, and sometimes it's useful to just peer into the mind of an insane person and, you know, think about what are the things that they see that, that we don't see. Um, because they may be insane, but that doesn't mean that they don't have something to tell us. So the use of the unreliable narrator doesn't mean that you should discount what they're saying. Um, it means that you should pay attention to them. And maybe, just maybe, if you're paying attention, you may find some deeper truth behind it. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about postmodernism. Postmodernism is something that is a word that has come up around, let's say, you know, the 1960s and 1970s is when it became more popular. And um, Christians have have um, criticized it with some some with some good reasons. Um, but what is it exactly and how should we engage with it? That is a great question. So. I mean, generally, I think the what I think of when I think about postmodernism is Nietzsche and the whole the idea that we live in a world after we have made the realization that objective reality is not either doesn't exist or is not graspable. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it was a bad thing when we did have objective reality. It just means that it's no longer tenable in the world that we live in. So the idea is that when we say things, when we write things, the ability to communicate anything actually is almost non-existent. And so that changes the way we think about art. Like when you write a story, you have something that you are thinking or feeling or meaning when you write it, but it may not be the same thing that the reader thinks or feels when they read it. And there's no incorrect interpretation of that text because it really doesn't have an objective meaning because there really isn't an objective meaning to anything. And so I think specifically when it comes to art, because we're talking about Mars Hill and the way that we engage with secular art, um, that poses kind of a problem for Christians who are trying to engage with art because we're approaching art 
in a in a world that most people would consider postmodern and saying not only is there objective reality or objective truth that we can compare this work to but that this work is maybe getting some things right where it didn't mean to get it right mm -hmm. and getting some things wrong where it didn't mean to get those things wrong whereas the odds are that the author didn't really think in terms of getting it right or getting it wrong. The author was just expressing something about the world the way that they saw it. And they maybe weren't even intending to say something objective. So there's a little bit of a not quite parallel view of what it means to write a story that's true. Um, I don't know if that's a that's a question or that's an answer that resolves the question at all of just a statement that it makes it difficult to talk about art uh, in a world that most people would consider postmodern. Yeah, and I think I kind of personally have a bit of an ambivalent attitude towards postmodernism because um, on the one hand, it's very difficult in academia, especially now, to simply say this is true and this is not true. And part of that is a product of postmodernism, and I think that that's extremely limiting. Um, even if there is some truth, I guess if you can even use the word at that point, to the fact that mm -hmm. we can't ultimately know things, and there's a certain amount of honesty that comes with that, um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try or try to understand what the truth is um, just because we can't know that there is no truth that does not in and of itself prove that the truth doesn't exist or that it cannot be apprehended at all. Um, that's actually a logical fallacy, which is the appeal to ignorance. Um, the appeal to ignorance is um, if there is an invisible cat in the chair, you couldn't see it, you can't see it, therefore there's an invisible cat in the chair. Um, so just because you can't see it uh, doesn't, doesn't prove the existence of it, um, but it also it doesn't prove the non-existence of it either. Um, so the problems that postmodernism presents us um, is not something that is necessarily antithetical to Christianity, um, but on the same token, it's it's not also it's also not antithetical to to atheism either either it's uh, it's almost a neutral thing. It's just simply saying we can't know, um, but that doesn't mean that we can't that we can we can just say that and 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 stop. I mean, I think there's a little bit of intellectual dishonesty there, um, and so people kind of tend to, I think, from my own experience in evangelical. Christian circles, they, they denigrate postmodernism um, for this exact reason, because they say we can't know, and we believe that, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, etc. But I would say, hold on, wait a minute, you know, this doesn't, this, this postmodernism framework this doesn't necessarily, um, this may somewhat, to some degree, run counter to certain Christian ideas, but it also doesn't serve atheism either. Um, because you can't use a postmodern postmodern framework to make the argument for you know the validity of Darwinian evolution or um, or the pro or proof that God doesn't exist. Postmodernism doesn't prove that either. In fact, it actually is an argument against it 
And so it's a double-edged sword in that sense. And postmodernism, postmodernism is also used in tandem very often with the word existentialism. And I had a student, actually, I was watching her speech talking about existentialism very negatively. There, she was saying, you know, existentialism is the idea that we all make our own meaning, and this is, this is the world we live in, and existentialism is, is bad. And I thought, well, okay, there's actually a problem with that, because existentialism was began with the Danish existentialist philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who was a very stringent Orthodox Christian. Um, not Eastern Orthodox, I mean, but, you know, he was very openly a Christian, and it was his Christianity which was the foundation of his existentialism. Um, so these, this, this existential grappling with the fact that we don't know things totally and completely doesn't necessarily mean that the conclusion is we should turn to atheism. It could very, very well mean that we need to turn to faith. And we need to face that and, and face the fact that, you know, we don't know everything. And that's part of the point. That's part of what uh, uh, faith is. And acting in the faith that there is something, uh, something to be discovered, something orderly and, and manifest that, that can be known. Leaving aside then the, the unreliable narrator discussion or <clears throat> how unreliable narrators connect to Mars Hill and all that. Um, actually completely switching gears entirely. I know nothing about this, and I kind of barely remember when you told me about it originally, so I'm actually very curious to, to hear about this again. Our cover art uh, for, for the Unreliable Narrators podcast, uh, I made the cover art, but I just used this image that you asked me to use, and I don't remember why we <laughs> use it. So why, why do we have this as our cover our background. Okay, I will explain this, and when I am done explaining it, you will see how it is actually related to unreliable narrators unintentionally. Ooh. Ooh. Oh my you gosh. Didn't, you didn't know, but I will explain why. Okay, so the cover art for our podcast is a picture of what is called an O'Neill cylinder by the artist Don Davis. So, <laughs> an O'Neill cylinder is a theoretical uh, conception of a space habitat uh, for living in space. And the way it works is that there's a tube, a cylinder, and it's rotating, and there are two rotating cylinders that are rotating in opposite directions, and they're connected to each other. And the they balance each other out, and that helps them orient properly uh, to the sun, stays facing the right direction towards the sun, and then the rotating cylinders in it um, create centripetal force, and that centripetal force is the artificial gravity. So you don't actually, it's like a space planet, but you don't actually live on the top of the planet the way natural gravity works, because we don't understand how natural gravity works. We make artificial gravity through centripetal force, and we live on the inside of the planet, so it's inverted. Um, this is actually an O'Neill cylinder was used in the movie Interstellar. Did you see Interstellar? Yes. Yeah. So you saw that. The, did you see the that scene at the end where there's a big cylinder? The guy hits the baseball, and the baseball like flies up up this giant wall, and then goes through a house. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Is that the scene where 
there's someone inside like the thing and they look outside the thing and they see a bookshelf and it's like the little girl okay i <laughs> see this has been a while so matthew mcconaughey like wakes up like in the future i don't know how long in the future but he basically lives inside an o'neill cylinder um oh, okay yeah so i mean if you actually lived in an o'neill cylinder the 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 curve the curvature of the earth wouldn't disappear there would be no horizon it would just go up you know and you could basically see the entire map of the world just by looking at the sky around you um oh wow yeah a very cool idea um but the o'neill cylinder so th- when i looked at this piece of art by don davis i was really struck by it because i thought you know what this is something that's just made as kind of like a theoretical concept um but it also is really beautiful in its own way and i think it has artistic merit in its own right even though it it wasn't intended to be used as you know a piece of art it was just uh you know a, a scientist who was you know had an idea and he commissioned an artist to put it into to 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 visualize it and um, the work of art has uh, has an interesting structure to it because if you look at it, uh, you can see that there's the the pieces of land that are kind of scattered around in this strange landscape, this strange uh, kind of fisheye lens landscape, and then it's all pointed towards the end of the cylinder because it's. Uh, that's the perspective that we're looking. We're looking down the cylinder, and at the end of the cylinder, you can see uh, I, what I think is the sun at the end of it. So there's light pouring into this cylinder, and then you can see that there's cracks in the cylinder, and through the cracks, you can see the stars. Um, and I think that that's really a beautiful idea because here's a construction. Here's a here's a here's a construction, a man-made thing that's pointing towards the light. And it's artificial, um, but there's light coming through it. And there's a deeper truth beyond this man-made construction that we've superimposed on it. So Leonard, Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen has a song where he says, there's a crack in everything. That's where the light gets mm. in. So that's, I think, the theme. That, that's what I think of when I look at that painting. There's a crack in everything. That's where the light gets in. And that's what I think of when I look at, when I look at art and look at the art that we're talking about is there's a crack in it. There's, there's truth that's, that's shining through it somewhere. And that's what we're looking for. Um, to call back to Hadestown mm-hmm. and our first episode, Persephone says in Our Lady of the Underground, uh, if you look closer... There's a crack in the wall. <laughs> amazing, amazing how that works. That's that's the great thing about about uh, um, English literature is that once you figure out how to uh, read a text, you can make it connect to all sorts of things. It's just like this infinite web of connections. Um, speaking of, we planned all of yes, this. yes. Speaking speaking of connections that are a bit of a stretch. <laughs> The painting that this looks like, the O'Neill Cylinder, I could not help but think that it looked very similar to uh, a painting by Gustave Doré 
of Dante's Paradiso. You know I've got to talk about Dante here. I was waiting for us to get to Dante. I was like, it's coming, it's coming. We're getting to Dante. We're getting to Dante. We will always get to Dante eventually at some point. But uh, this painting, there's a bit, you should, I, uh, I don't know, maybe we should link it. This painting by da, uh, Gustave Dore in 1868 is a picture of Dante and Beatrice looking upward towards paradise. And Dante built his entire uh, ge uh, geography of, of the universe based on the geocentric model, where the Earth is the center of the universe. Obviously, we've C C Copernicus and Galileo came along. They dismissed this theory as not scientifically accurate. Um, so does that mean that we should dismiss the veracity of the story simply because we realized that this model of the universe was not correct? Um, obviously not. It was a piece of, it was a beautiful piece of art. And the, 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 the truth that came out of that model are still, still valid, even though he was using a model of the universe that was incorrect. Um, so this painting by Gustave Doré, um, I don't know if I'm actually saying that right, um, is a picture of the earth at the center, and this was Dante's conception of paradise. The earth is at the center, and then heaven, or paradise, is a series of concentric circles which are emanating from that center. And that's what Dante and Beatrice are looking at. And it, and it looks, I think, that that's, that circular, uh, increasing, uh, increasingly expanding concentric circles looks very similar in parallel to to the painting by of the O'Neill Cylinder by Don Davis. And I think, again, that's like, that's not intentional. Obviously, it's not intentional. It's an unintentional parallel, but still, the truth is there. And there's still something that that art tells us about the truth. Um, so anyway, that is, that is why um, we chose that, that painting. That painting is another example of an unreliable narrator. That's... Amazing. That is an amazing string of connections. Yeah, a lot of connections. And I think <laughs> I was looking over at my shelf because I thought I have like three copies of the Divine Comedy and one of them I think has the the illustration that you're talking about. But it's not the copy that's here, it's the one that it that it's at school. Oh. So okay. I couldn't look at it. Yeah, yeah. We don't have the internet. We don't have the internet. I can't just look at yeah, it. Yeah, this what internet? What are we talking about? No. Need to have it in a book. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's the that's one of the elements of our podcast, but the other element of it is our theme song, and Sophie selected our theme song. So, uh, Sophie, why don't you tell us a little bit about the theme song that we chose and and why we chose it? So it's called "No New Words" by Caleb Klomperens. Um Any relation to Sophie Klomperens? No, I don't know him. I've never. I wish I did. He's great. <laughs> no, he's my brother, um, my older brother, <clears throat> and it's the last song on his album Crypt. Uh, we will link that in the description. You should go listen to it. It's very good. Um, in the album Crypt, there are I think four songs that have lyrics in them, and each one references this idea of mystery, and all of them at least until the end, until this last song, reference mystery in a uh, reverent and almost frightened tone, uh, being perplexed by and perhaps scared by mystery and wanting to hold it at arm's length because the goal is to 
be able to understand and comprehend the world around you. And when you can't, when there are things that are mysterious and paradoxical, that that's difficult to, to grapple with. And so a lot of the album is that struggle of trying to understand or at least to to accept the fact that there are mysteries that we don't fully understand and that all we can do is uh, experience them. And so some of the words of No New Words, which is our theme song, it starts with, There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. And then later in the song, that that verse ends with, But for all that I'm worth, I'll play the old drum. And then it says, I can't remember when... So this is... It goes through that a few times through this theme of there not being new words or uh, the artist struggling with the fact that no matter what he writes or how he writes it, he knows that he can't actually make new chords that strings haven't strummed, that other people haven't made already. There aren't really new chord progressions. There aren't really new ways to put music together. There aren't really new words. Um, Shakespeare said something like that, that he said, all my best is dressing old words new, spending again what is already spent. Because I, he had that same problem. He realized that all he did was talk about love in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, honestly, I think all artists eventually struggle with this idea. But then towards the end of the song, uh, the lyrics, there's a key change. And it says, I can't remember when, someday and somehow, you spoke to me then and live in me now. It's hard to believe that you chose to sing to me. I'm as lucky as can be and I'm full of relief. So this idea that the the change in this singer's perspective at the very end comes when he thinks about the fact that maybe his words or his art or his poetry, even if it's not new, maybe isn't new because it comes from a source, uh, because someone chose to sing to him, uh, you spoke to me then and live in me now. And that is where that all comes from. Which reminds me of Paul saying, your poets have said, we also are his children. Um, That if we have the spirit of God in us, by nature of being humans, because we're made in the image of God, maybe part of the reason there are no new words is that we recreate in our own way the thoughts and uh, longings of those who came before us because no person is really in isolation. We all want the same thing because we're all after the same spirit of God. And then the song goes, I know you can see something inside the one part of me that I cannot hide. And maybe it's true that nothing is new, but I can see so much more in you. And then the last couple lines are, so hard to write what mystery wrote, but for all that I'm worth, I'll keep clicking in notes. So we end on the idea that it's, it's hard and painful to write what mystery wrote. So what mystery already wrote. Um, the words aren't new. We agree that the words aren't new. But accepting that they come from the power of mystery or the power of God is what makes those words valuable and that it's valuable to write words that aren't new because it the words don't need to be new because originality isn't where they get their power they get their power because they come from a source of light right and there's that that um um 
the the word authority and author, which obviously come from the same place, um, tell us also something about what the purpose of art is and what the purpose of, of writing is. And um, when we look at, when we're trying to appeal to the truth or, or find out what the truth is, we have to appeal to some kind of higher authority and that we can't, uh, we have to appeal to a higher authority in any kind of context that we're talking about. And that's part of what it means to be an author. It's not about being original um, necessarily. To have an authority as human beings and as subjective and as limited hum human beings who don't know and can't know, we have to reach out to something beyond ourselves in order to embody that authority. And that sometimes the way that we can express truth is through stories that or maybe the people, only way right <laughs> that sometimes people i mean to circle back to the whole idea of mars hill that someone who doesn't think that they have a connection to the truth they don't think they have a connection to the mystery that is the source of life they don't know the love that turns the sun and other stars see i can i can do the dante thing too <laughs> um they don't know that, and yet, because they are being honest about what is within them and about what they see in the world, they express it anyway, because maybe there are no new words. Maybe the only words that you can say that are truly honest, if you really are being honest with yourself about the world, maybe you can't help but tell the truth. And that's really the whole exercise of Mars Hill. Right. It's an old song, but we're, we're going to sing it anyway. But we sing it anyway. <laughs> yep, yep. So, Raymond, uh, going back to the rhetorical situation idea, what are some differences between Paul's rhetorical situation and our rhetorical situation? That's a great question, and we're going to have to save that for our next podcast coming up where we analyze no. U2's song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Stay tuned. Get hyped. Yep. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening to our special episode, and we hope to see you again soon. See you next time. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Stoa Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com or email us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. That's unreliablenarratorsstoa, S-T-O-A, at gmail.com. And let us know what piece on the Stoa Mars Hill list you would like to hear discussed. This podcast is produced by Raymond Dokopil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. Until next time, friends, Merry Christmas. I know you can see something inside the one part of me that I cannot hide. And maybe it's true that nothing is new, but I can see so much more in you.